Hashtag SFM Talking Point. Mr. Nelson Mandela will, within seconds, within seconds appear, and that will be the moment the world has been waiting for. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. Mrs. Winnie Mandela next to him, waving to the crowds, hand in hand, they leave the Victor Fister prison. And that there was the voice of Clarence Akita, and uh, he was commenting on the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990. It's been 32 years uh, since that moment, and today the Nelson Mandela Museum has arranged this event to commemorate that moment, sitting in front of me, looking young as ever, I must add. <laughs> Looking very young and handsome is uh, Reverend Alan Busak. And good morning to you, Reverend, well, and, morning, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Listening back to that clip, and in in one ways, you know, it's it's a moment that people experience differently. I would have been three years old at the time, so. I don't have a recollection of that memory. What I know of it is from what I've seen uh, through the footage that, that has been shared. You are somebody that was close to those developments. You were closer to Madiba. What, what does it do to you to hear that, um, that audio and, and to be taken back to that place and, and be in the space today? I mean, from, from early this morning, uh, my mind has been flooded uh, by all these memories. Uh, one of the great ironies is, of course, everybody talks about him coming out here uh, from Drakenstein prison, the old Victor Fister prison. Um, I had visited this prison uh, three times in my life. Today is the fourth. First was 85 with the UDF march to demand the release of the political prisoners. The next was 89, um, to demand the release specifically of President Nelson Mandela. And then um, towards the end of it, uh, that year, um, when uh, I was allowed to come in and talk to him. Um, it was amazing seeing him mm. for the first time in my life, of course, and hearing his voice, not on the telephone as I did a few years ago, but then um, looking him in the eye, and of course, uh, he was gracious, um, and it, it, it struck me how clear he was in his mind, mm. how the way that he could formulate the stuff that he wanted us to say in the instructions that he was giving me that day. So, um, but on the day of his release, I couldn't be here. Mm. Uh, it was a Sunday. My church had Reverend Jesse Jackson from the United States as a guest preacher. So I couldn't, I couldn't leave Jesse there. I couldn't say to the church, we cancel the service because we have this visitor from, from, from so far away. And, and so I said to people, you've got to go and you go get him there. I will meet you on the Grand Parade. Mm. And that is what happened. And one of the other funny things is when we got there, I mean, the crowds, of course, were just amazingly mm. crazy about this. But they would allow me in. But when I looked around, Jesse wasn't with me. 
they wouldn't let him through the door. Uh, I don't know who made that decision, and I had to try to tell them, look, guys, this is a visitor, he's a civil rights icon, and he's mm. all right, worked with mm. Dr. Martin Luther King, left the guy in. Somehow they couldn't, and so we, we had to pull him up along the pillars to climb over the balcony to get, in, <laughs> to get inside. But, but, but for myself, to think there is Nelson Mandela on that balcony speaking, to his people for the first time. My mm. generation never heard him, never saw him. The generations mm. after me didn't know, they only knew the name. When we in our rallies always talked about Nelson Mandela is our leader. He will be our first president. Um, young people were sort of looking at us and cheering of course and thinking yes, yes, yes. But we had no idea what that would mean. Mm. Um, so to have him there and to have that day was just um, stunningly amazing. You, you know, as you speak, the, the imagery that comes to mind is the, the, the statue that has now been put up in the front of, of the city hall at, at the Grand Parade. Yes. And, and there was a moment during last night's State of the Nation address that I felt, you know, this is, is, is it's somewhat ironic that we end up at the you know city hall on a day that marks the anniversary effectively of when he would have first been able to to address people did you see it in that way well, especially as somebody who would have been there at the time and and the historical significance perhaps is, is even greater for you well you're absolutely right to make that to make that connection and but i mean it's always it's always for me i, I it's it's not for us my generation and generations before. It's not so much about the significance of, of the city hall. Mm. City hall was always white people's place. Mm. We could hardly get there except with special permission on special occasions. Um, and remember, so right across from the city hall is the Grand Parade. Mm. Now that was our space. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s even, our organizations from the African People's Organization to the ANC to, to all of these organizations, we came together on the Grand Parade for all these great rallies to hear all these amazing leaders and all their words of encouragement to our people. And if you think of those times, what does it mean to go to the Grand Parade, get your people together to prepare them for 1948 mm. uh, and what was coming? to go there and tell them about the new laws until those laws, of course, made it impossible for us. They banned all of this. And so for me that day, to see Mandela on that balcony was on the one hand, we reclaimed that city hall. That's now our space. Mm -hmm. It's our city. It's our place. Our president is standing there. But we also reclaimed the, great, the, the Grand Parade, that space. Mm -hmm. And so the dynamic between the city hall and the Grand Parade and Mandela and his people who almost went crazy because he stayed away so long, too long for their taste, and they became almost restive. Mm -hmm. That dynamic is what keeps on playing in my mind. So this reclamation, this taking back of that which is rightfully ours. And it must not only be the physical spaces, it must be the spaces of our mind and our memories and, and our history. All of that, a day like today, we must say to ourselves, this is what we pledge to the new generation. We will never forget.
and we will make sure that that space is there for them to see and to grow and to flourish. Um, and so this is what it all means for me today. Advocate, uh, sorry, Reverend Busak, I, I want to take you back to that moment that took place here at the Drakenstein Correctional Services when you first met Madiba as a student leader organizing young people uh, at the time in the fight against the struggle. I remember I was getting quite envious because uh, they had given many of the other people, uh, the leaders, of uh, opportunity to come and see him. They dilly-dallied with me. Uh, I, was the, I, was, I was the last of the, <laughs> of the eternal leadership to come here and to actually see him for the first time. I mean, and for me it was uh, in 1989, um, it so happened that I was one evening on my way back from overseas, I was in the house of Uncle Walter Sisulu. Uh, and as we were talking about uh, sanctions and about all those things and about a, a media conference we would have the next day before I returned to Cape Town, the telephone rang mm -hmm. in his house. And he picked up the phone and I heard him say, oh, hi, Madiba, how are you? And I was thinking, is that real? And he was calling him from this place. Mm -hmm. And he was saying to Madiba, uh, you have no idea who I have in my house tonight. And, and then he looked at me and he says, young man, he wants to talk to you. <laughs> you, you must have gone berserk, well, I thought, losing your mind. I, I, thought, I thought, well, you, you better be dignified now. <laughs> So we had a conversation, um, but that was that was us on the phone to see him actually um, in in person. I, I mean, and we many of us uh, were worried. I mean, what had 27 years done to him? Mm -hmm. What have those years in prison isolation done to him? They tried so hard to loosen him from his people, to isolate himself from his people. Were they able to isolate his heart from his people's heart? Mm -hmm. uh, those were the questions. How would his mind be? Mm -hmm. um, and when all of those things, the moment he said hello and the moment we started talking, um, his clarity of mind already said, uh, I, was, I, was, I was so... I was so overwhelmed. It was, mm. a, it was a great moment, and I knew uh, in front of me was the real man, and he was mm. everything that we had dreamed that he would be. So it was amazing. When we look at some of what is said today about Madiba, and it's not just limited to his life, his legacy, but even his time in prison, there is a narrative that seeks to suggest that Madiba had a good time in prison. He was living in a house and there's a confusion about the fact that he was here for 14 months and that the 27 years, the collective 27 years he spent behind bars yes. was not spent at, at that house. No. Clarify that for us because again, there are generations of young people that are learning this history and again there's been a lot of distortion of what that history actually is. Absolutely. I mean, you cannot, you cannot bring his time in prison down and reduce it to the few months he stayed here. And people must remember two things. Robben Island is Robben Island. Robben Island has been, 
has been a prison uh, for a political prison for political prisoners since the days of Aoutchimau, uh, the coy leader who was finally he was the only person who ever escaped from Robben Island. And Madiba always said to me, "You have to be very proud of that man. I know of nobody else who escaped from that place." And we know what that place is. We know the way they treat you in prison. I was in prison. I know what that means. And so when they when they finally brought him here, people who talk about the days here must remember that was after relentless pressure from our people in the streets. I mean, that march uh, in 1985 was one of the largest marches to demand that we were going to walk from Athlone to, uh, to Polesmoor prison to go and demand his release. And that was a day I was, I was detained under Section 29 only the day before because they thought if they took me away, the march will stop. But, I mean, they didn't know our people. Mm -hmm. They didn't know our youth. They didn't know our students. They refused, and the march went on, even though there was a huge clash, lots of casualties that day. Mm -hmm. um, and so people must, must understand. We had prayer services. We had marches right through from 1985, right through to 1989. It was because of the pressure of our people that PW would have had no choice in the end but to bring Nelson Mandela first from Robben Island and then to Polesmoor and then we said that's not enough we want him out and then from Polesmoor to here and put him in a house he said yeah but that's a house but it's not his house mm. it's not our house he should not be in a house on a prison ground mm. and so that was the kind of thing and finally they knew that they couldn't stop the tide of change and of resistance, and we brought him out. I mean, I always say to people, remember, it was not F.W. Dictel's kindness of his heart. It was our people's sacrifice. It was our people's pressure. It was our people's continued resistance and our continued demands that the political prisoners should be free. And when they let the others free, um, and not and, and not Madiba, we said, oh, we are grateful. It was wonderful. I marched with Walter Susulu before Nelson Mandela came out of prison. But at that march, we said, there's the one in there. He's got to come out. And without him, there will be no peace and there will be no rest for you, mm. government. So people must understand it is, it, is, it is the achievement of a whole generation. It's the achievement especially of young people who brought Nelson Mandela from Robben Island to Polesmoor to Victor Fester, as it was known then, and finally to the City Hall and finally to the seat of president. Mm. Uh, the chair of the Nelson Mandela Museum has just joined us, and I'll bring you into this conversation shortly. Reverend Brusak, I, I just want to again reflect on some of the misconceptions of that time while we have you, there's this idea that when Madiba was here, he was basically in cahoots and colluding with the apartheid state about what a democratic dispensation needed to look like, and that there were concessions that were made that were born out of whatever talks that were happening if one pays attention to the narrative quite, quite carefully, it suggests that people would just arrive and they would sit down with him, you know, in his house and they would talk and they would make agreements and then suddenly he's out and this is the South Africa we end up with. 
No, no. I mean, that's, that's the problem. Look, the, the, the historical reality is that there were secret talks between the African National Congress and the South African government and the, the, the capitalist class between 1985 and 1989. We know that. People have written books about that and so on. Um, I am never sure how much Nelson Mandela was actually part of those things. I get young people who, who say to me, yeah, but Mandela was a seller. And so I try to sit them down and say, do you actually realize what you are saying? Um, I, you could not, in the 14 months that he was here, with all of those conversations, spell out what South Africa would be and a whole democratic dispensation. And so for me, uh, not everything in that narrative is true. And certainly, I know for a fact that the way our democratic dispensation worked out was not completely how Mandela envisaged. For instance, he, he had a far clearer idea of the role that the Freedom Charter should play in our politics, in our constitution, and in uh, our economic policies. And the Freedom Charter did not in the end play that role. So that is not on Mandela. That is on other people. And the African National Congress as a whole must take responsibility for that. And that's what we need to discuss, honestly and respectfully, but quite clearly and frankly with one another. And so the name Mandela is, is the great name and everybody likes to hang something on that one name. Um, but that is not the case, I think. If Mandela had had his way, these young people who now fight about our economic policies, if he had had his way, it would have been different. If he had had his way, the people who say, where is the Freedom Charter in everything that we do, if Mandela had had his way, that Freedom Charter would have been much more reflected, much more positively, much more embraced in what we try to do today. And so what I say to them, your job now as this generation, is not to say he was a sellout. Ask what would he have had? He was not the only man. And the other thing about Mandela, he was so through and through an ANC creature. I mean, he would never have thought of, I have this idea and I will push my idea through. He would always bring it to the organization. He would always submit in the end to what the organization felt was the right way. Sure. In, my, in my mind, I remember our conversations here and in my home when, when he came to Cape Town and stayed over. I always say to myself, I keep in my mind what Mandela and I were talking about. What would he have wanted? If it doesn't come to pass, it is on me and our generation to make sure that it does come to pass and that this country change uh, itself in its ways according to his views and dreams and hopes. Reverend Ellen Busak, they are part of our special coverage and debate today. We're marking 32 years of the release of Nelson Mandela from prison. What we're going to do, we'll take the 10.30 news headlines. Our conversation uh, continues. We bring in the Nelson Mandela Museum after this. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105.6 FM in Mtata. 
We continue the conversation on uh, the Talking Point special broadcast from the Drakenstein Correctional Facility. And I know I've said it already, but it's, it's marking 32 years of the release of Nelson Mandela from Victor Fester Prison, and it's now been renamed uh, the Nelson Mandela Museum Council Chair, Dr. Nomvuselelo Songelwa, is joining us for this conversation. Of course, you've been hearing uh, from Reverend Ellen Busak. Not a surprise uh, the way that he was able to gather people, you know, just listening to him speak, I'm ready to go and protest. I'm like, <laughs> let's go, Reverend Busak. <laughs> what, is it? Wait, what is the issue? I'll bring the placards. Uh, Dr. Sogelwa, let me come to you because as the museum, you have coordinated this event and there are quite a number of other things that uh, are happening around the legacy projects uh, that are associated with Nelson Mandela and uh, the correctional services community. Yes. Yes, you can go ahead. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for inviting me uh, to be here. It is actually befitting that um, the communities of the Western Cape and around this area continue to uphold the legacy of Utatu Mandela. And this prison in particular. Uh, because all of us can, rem can be reminded of that photo that each one of us um, think of, of Tata Mandela and Mama Wini, who came out of this area um, and really liberated uh, this, uh, this country. So the legacy, therefore, uh, and the legacy projects that uh, the prison um, has is actually reminding all of us and the generations that are coming that it is not only about the history but it is about now us what is it that we have to do mm. to actually uphold those values because most of the time when you talk about the legacy projects and I think uh, uh, Rev Busak was talking to we kind of like look at an individual and I think when I was talking here, I was actually saying, we really need to own the leadership. The leadership is not necessarily the history. It's about contemporary politics. Because we have youth and communities and people that are living in this era now asking, yes, that happened 32 years ago, so what now? Mm -hmm. And the legacy projects of 22 years ago should actually evolve to be relevant mm. to the issues of today. So for me, when we talk about the legacy projects and the history and what happened 32 years ago, it actually becomes irrelevant if you yourself are not upholding those values, mm. the virtues that Tate Mandela and the other people, other leaders, uh, actually like inculcated at the time. The, the issue of what this legacy means today, and, and Reverend Busak, I'm going to come to you because I know that you're going to be coming up on the program, the formal program inside the hall shortly, so I'll need to release you soon. But when you contextualize the role and the lessons that can be drawn on this very deep and rich history 
and how we as young people today can draw from those experiences and perhaps use some of the methods to fight the struggles that we fight today. Is there a, a connection there? Be because it does seem to me that there has been a, a disconnect, that that level of activism, that level of, of agency, social agency, this collective social agency is not being pulled together in a way that we saw in the fight against apartheid. And yet, we're facing incredible challenges in this country. Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, that's what uh, we talk about just about every single day. You will uh, not believe me when I say how many people every single day on the street say to me, look at where we are today. And I address some of those things in, in, in what I'm going to say on the stage. Uh, what has happened to us? Where are the ideals? Or the question that almost encompasses everything, Doc, do you think this is what we fought for? So there's deep anger with many, especially the younger generation, there's lots of disillusionment and, and disappointment. And some people are so angry they just want to burn everything down. Mm. But there are some other young people who actually come to me and we are in conversation as we speak, who say to me, something happened in the 1970s and the 1980s. Share with us what you guys did. What is it that we must do right now? Because the challenges have not gone away. Poverty and the impoverishment of our people are worse now. Corruption is not going away. Promises are being made and broken. They look at us and they, they tell us, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, but they themselves are not setting the example. There is not a sense of the sacrificial love for our people. I'll, and I'll talk again about that today, that that generation had. I mean, I, I still think back and I am stunned at what I have experienced together with those young people from 76 on was right to the end of 1989. Um, and, and, and that is the spirit that we should recapture. And I don't believe that it is gone. I don't believe that it is dead. Uh, young people are angry, but for a reason. And what I say to them is, yes, be angry, but let's ask the question, how do we channel that anger into some positive energy to make the changes that we actually want? And you must not let anybody tell you, you don't have a right to say these things because the ANC is now in power and you fought when the apartheid was in power. We don't look at who is in power, you look at what do they do with the power that they have when they are in power? And if that power does not serve justice and dignity for our people, then you have a reason to fight. And as, as long as there is anybody who is impoverished, as long as there's anybody who suffers, as long as there's anybody who does not have any opportunity that this country ought to be giving our people, all our people, but especially our young people, then there's always something to fight for that is the spirit that I think we can rekindle. Those fires um, have not died out. Those embers are still there. And my job is to blow those embers as much as I can to see whether the fires can take flame again. And you take that fire and you take the politicians and they hold their feet to that fire until it burns unless they do what they have to do. That's, that's, that's how I see things.
Reverend Busak, let me thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation. I'm officially releasing you so that you, you can uh, get ready for your address inside. I appreciate it. Thank you very much and thank you to your listeners. Have a good day today. Thank you so much. And still part of the conversation is the uh, Council Chair of the Nelson Mandela Museum, Dr. Numbuselelo Songelwa, and joining us also, uh, taking a seat a short while ago, Incarceration Nations Network Executive Director, Baz Drazinger. Uh, Baz, yeah, you can just take a seat right there. Let me come back to you, Dr. Songelwa, because today how what you have done is that you're talking about commemorating um, Madiba's release, and at the same time, you have this international museum summit uh, that is taking place. And, and you know, the one thing that's, that, that stands out for me, especially as um, Reverend Busak was speaking, is, is the importance of memory. And oftentimes, you know, it's not really emphasized enough in this country that if we are not preserving memory, and the integrity of facts and the integrity of being able to capture a moment in time in as close to possible the way that it happened. We're doing future generations a disservice. We're doing ourselves really yes. a disservice. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, question. You know, yesterday it was such a powerful engagement um, that we had in Muntata um, around uh, the, the summit, which is actually an annual summit that we do. And this is one of the legacy programs that as the Nelson Mandela Museum we do, where we actually bring international presenters to really talk about the memories and how the was we can translate into the present to inform the future. Um, and we also just really bring youth on board to actually really talk to. Um, you know, for me, I was saying that uh, uh, here uh, in the hall, um, what really came out very strongly um, in the international uh, summit that we had yesterday, and it came out from students uh, from the university, uh, from young people, it came from academia, and people that were actually saying, yes, we can pronounce more about the projects and the programs um, at a political level, at government level. Uh, but I think what we're not dealing with, we're not dealing with the virus of the arrogance, the arrogance of the intangibles, those things that we cannot see. And, and, and I remember yesterday, one of the speakers also spoke to, really, this is the time we just need to listen to each other because there's too much noise that is happening out there. Everybody else is coming up with their own understanding and interpretation of what happened you know, uh, if you talk about the questions that mm. we just raised now, and everybody depending on what perspective. And we are saying it's okay to do that uh, because the more diverse uh, thoughts that we bring on board, the more innovative that our solutions should be. So as a museum and even with the, uh, the Dragonstein uh, uh, 
prison, we kind of like keep this memory through engagements like you are doing now, mm -hmm. but we do it with youth on the ground, we go to the outskirts, we've got partners on the ground with the museum and we are very grateful for those people that with the limited resources that we have, there's so much partnership, especially with the international, the international uh, stakeholders mm -hmm. uh, that continue uh, to assist us to bring this debate not only at a local level but also um, internationally. And, and it is the reason why today we are here with our partners to have this program to kind of like say, listen, let's listen. Somebody needs to be listened to. And let's, in my language, mastobe no more. Mm. And when you really remember a spirit, an elderly spirit in my own culture, it's in a somber mood because it's a recognition that you are at the crossroads. Mm -hmm. It's a recognition that we really need to find solutions sure. in case we are actually not really celebrating the people whose spirit we are calling. Mm. Baz, let me bring you in here. You know, as the executive director of the incarceration, a third time lucky there, uh, Nations Network, part of the work that you do is around what takes place in correctional centers themselves. What are the systemic issues um, that they face? And, and of course, we know. And of course, we know that uh, when it comes to Madiba, he was a huge champion of prison reforms. And the, even the United Nations has acknowledged that through the Nelson Mandela rules that are really an international framework for how prisoners globally, the rights that should be afforded to prisoners globally. Let's talk a bit about that. Absolutely. So I think, I mean, I'm here representing Incarceration yeah. Nations Network and representing really all of our partners around the world. We have 115 partners around the world who are engaged in processes of prison reform and really reimagining what justice means. Mm -hmm. And I can say that every single one of them is inspired by this nation, by this very facility that we are, we are sitting in. Um, and that is because this these prisons nurtured and honed the genius of this nation that continues to inspire the world. And so what we are about is rethinking how we do justice, how we bring peace to our communities, and how we move away from a system of trauma and harm and into a system that is about community safety and peace mm -hmm. and the spreading of love. And so it's not about, we don't call this a department of punishment or a department of harm. We call it a department of correction. And so when we think about correction, we must say, what are we correcting? We must correct both individuals who cause harm, sure, but we also must cause the systemic uh, inequality and racism of societies globally that produce crime most of all. And it's the communities that produce crime that need to be corrected. And so for that, we're all in it together. And our mm -hmm. partners are taking all kinds of radical, uh, innovative approaches to justice all around the world, whether it's uh, working in reintegration, whether it's working in programs inside the prison walls that are actually bringing us uh, the kind of corrections, again, that we seek, whether it's restorative justice programs 
programs that are replacing prisons altogether uh, or other kinds of diversion programs. It really comes down to let's innovate. We've been doing this the same old way in these old mm -hmm. correctional facilities uh, for, for centuries in ways that are clearly not making us safer, and I say that globally speaking. I come from the country, the United States, I'm from New York City. We have the largest prison population in the world. We have 2.3 million people behind bars. There are more African Americans under criminal supervision today in the U.S. than there were enslaved people at the height of slavery in 1850. That is a terrifying reality, and that's what we're trying to address by way of being innovative uh, and rethinking and reimagining justice. We're going to continue this conversation in a bit, and I want to hear about what some of these innovative ways that you're referencing, what some of those are, and what the change in approach can be, even for a country like South Africa. You're listening to the Talking Point. We're leading the conversation on SAFM. We continue the conversation on the talking point. I'll take some of your uh, voice notes. Of course, you can send those through as the show continues, uh, particularly on the conversation we're having for our special broadcast today. Uh, I'm going to continue the conversation with Bev Dreisinger, who is the Executive Director in Incarceration Nations Network. And we're also, of course, talking with the Nelson Mandela Museum Council Chair, Dr. Numbuselelo Songel. Uh, Baz, you talk about, you know, championing reform of correctional facilities. And we've had this conversation a number of times on the show where ultimately the general sense that members of, of the community have is that when somebody is imprisoned, they must be punished. The idea that people get three meals a day, mm -hmm. that they can go to school and further their education is something that does not sit well with some members of, of the community, particularly those who have experienced crime or criminality firsthand. So when you preach the message of reform, what are some of the challenges that you as an organization find, not just with the community that, of course, has to be, that some of these uh, you know, offenders have to come back and be part of, but also the, the, the systemic challenges that, that inhibit those reforms? So I think you just mentioned the, I think, most prevalent uh, resistance to this idea of justice reform, justice reimagining, prison reform, and that is this, this claim of, but what about the victims, and oh, we must punish people. We need to pull back and say, what is a justice system for? What are we doing with, with, with prisons? Uh, and what we are allegedly doing is creating safer communities. That, sh that is our goal, creating safer communities and from a restorative perspective, centering the needs of those who have been harmed at the crux of any justice system. Prisons do not do that. I think if they did that, we in, in the U.S. wouldn't be facing the level of crime and gun violence that we were. We have the largest prison population in the world. Uh, in South Africa, the same could be true, and the same can really be true globally. We, prisons are not making us safer. So if it's about revenge and just feeling that satisfaction of watching someone who has caused harm experienced harm, well, then very well, enjoy the process of punishment. But if it's truly about creating safer communities, about addressing the root causes of harm, i.e. inequality and racism, again, globally speaking, 
if it's truly about building safety and building justice, then we need to rethink this idea of punishment and think about accountability, about restoration, um, and, and how do we get to those things. There is you know, a cliche that says that hurt people hurt people. When we respond to someone who has caused harm with further harm and damage, someone who has caused trauma by re-traumatizing them and, and traumatizing them yet more, we then perpetuate a cycle and, of harm that comes back to harm us all because we're not building safer communities that way. True accountability is no walk in the park. True accountability is not uh, it is about recognizing what you may have caused, recognizing as well the structural factors that may have caused it and, and how we can address those, and then creating an avenue for true justice. So generally speaking, we always need to pull back and say, what is justice for? And what it's for is about building safe communities and building peace. And I think the other factor to think about, again, is the needs of the people who've been harmed. Uh, the needs of the people who've been harmed, study after study has shown us that prisons are not giving them this satisfaction, giving them the healing that they deserve. Uh, and instead, they're met by a whole host of other needs. Certainly, I'm a tremendous fan of restorative justice, which is at the core of this nation's principles. Mm -hmm. This idea that it's not just about, oh, come say I'm sorry, but truly find a way to take accountability and make up for the harm that you have caused in a way that stops that cycle of harm mm -hmm. and instead actually builds safer communities and peace. Dr. Songelo, we're quickly running out of time. This hour has flown by. Uh, one of your colleagues was saying we needed three hours. I, I think I'm, I'm starting to agree with her. But before we, we wrap up this conversation, let's talk about what the future then looks like. You have all of these incredible inputs that are coming from your international partners and others that, that will be made. What do you do with all of it? Oh, yes. Um, actually, um, as a museum, um, after each and every engagement that we have, and also um, I can tell you that we had a strategic session uh, with the museum um, and taking on, you know, on what is currently happening and kind of like reprioritized the action plans. Just to make an example, uh, one of the things that we know um, that we have to do is to open the museum to, to the world, so through digitization. And again, with the assistance of the international stakeholders, we are actually getting partnership to digitalize what we have as a museum to just make sure that everybody access the museum wherever they are and they are able to interact uh, with, uh, with us. Secondly, um, one of the things that we also do we are enhancing our stakeholder engagement, not only through the media, but as we are actually saying is, we really need to go out there. And that also that came out yesterday, we need to go out there to the outskirts of the people. We need to talk to the, to, you know, to the women on the ground about GPV, not really what is in the, in, the, is in, the, in the policies or whatever. How do we address these kind of things? We have partnership with traditional leaders, and we are very uh, happy to be located um, in the rural uh, sure. come of, uh, of the country. So we have traditional leaders in our midst that continue to guide us in terms of, you know,
you know, these are the things that we probably need to do. And one of the things that we actually even said to ourselves, which we are going to again be doing, is to say, maybe we should open up a debate about leadership. You know, bring the youth and say, in where we find ourselves now, what are the things that we can do? not only as individuals, but as collectives, sure. you, know, um, you know, you will know this if you are a parent, for instance, mm -hmm. that um, a lot of parents out there have got issues that, uh, with parenting because now there are laws in this country that prohibit them from actually punishing the, their children. And unfortunately, the consequences of that are unintended, as that then you have rebellious people that are actually not respecting their parents and uh, uh, authority. So these are the kind of things that we really have to right. continue to debate. Dr. Songelo, we're going to have to leave it there. Baz, it's been a pleasure being in conversation with you this morning as well. Uh, so that's where we're going to wrap it up for this hour of the show, of course, the final hour of the Talking Point. Coming up after this is the Friday Wine down and we're in conversation with Donald. Before we get to